I would like for you to to just change gears because we've been doing this whole walk to the cross. And I want you to just think when you hear the word checkmate. Describe maybe by words what you feel. Checkmate. Anybody want to? Game over. That's exactly what one of them. Yep. Anyone else? Defeat. Victory. Oh, from the other side. You must be a good chess player. Yeah, things like trapped. Uh, no place to move. Cornered. Big one. Game over. And I say that when, when you hear the word checkmate, someone's saying that to you. Those are some of the thoughts going on. I think... As we progress in this last week of Jesus' life, as he would tell these stories and he would live out these dramatic actions and parables, that's exactly what was going on in the hearts of, of those religious leaders in his day. They were feeling trapped, cornered, no place to move. In their mind, kind of game over. They didn't know how to handle this guy. In fact, if we look at this last week, we talk about walk to the cross. I just want to give you a quick look again at this. It, it, it's the week of Passover. So people, both Jews from all over the world and, and even God-fearing Greeks, are descending on this city, Jerusalem. And the, and the, the roads are packed with people. Every In every house is filled with people. The city's crowded. And Jesus shows up just on the outskirts of town on a Friday. And he's been told about a man who's a good friend of his, Lazarus, who has died. And on that Friday, he raises Lazarus from the dead. The next day is a Saturday, and the news of what's happened is, is spreading everywhere around the city. There's this great prophet in town. There's this Messiah who has been, for the last three years, going throughout Palestine. And then Sunday is what is called, I call it presentation day. You'll think of it more as triumphal entry, but you don't really realize that Nisan 10, that month in the Jewish calendar, in that day, in that time, was the day that they would come and present to the priests their lambs that would be given at Passover. Jesus was coming into, in an acted out parable into the city presenting himself as the lamb who was worthy to be slain into the temple. He comes into the temple and he sees it just filled with, with, with these money changers and others in the outer courts and the people who are the God-fearers and the lame and the blind who can't get into the next level of the court have no place to find God. And he's upset in his heart. And it moves us to that next day, which is that Tuesday, or that Monday, which is what I call that purification day. Where in that day, um, Jesus on the way curses the fig tree. And then he actually, according to Mark's gospel, that time period, he goes in after that and he cleanses the temple and they go back home. It's probably later. They don't see it. But the next morning and here's the day we're going to be in Tuesday. Is what I call prove yourself day. And the reason that is on the way in, they see the fig tree has been withered. Peter looks at it and now begins this day of controversy and teaching. Jesus, who had come into Jerusalem and had by dramatic actions through this walking with this donkey into the city through the gates and people calling out Hosanna, had without saying a thing acted out what they had known in Scripture and claimed to be the Messiah without saying it from his mouth. But all the people who could see, whose hearts were soft and began to understand what was going on, cried out Hosanna. They cried it out and the religious leaders who were feeling a bit 
in, you know, it was like check. They were feeling a bit cornered, began to say, Jesus, well, you know, how can you allow these people to say these things? And Jesus doesn't directly say he's Messiah, but he neither denies it purposely. Because one of the things that Jesus does, it's so phenomenal. I just say read through scripture every year. I get the joy of of being able to study this and share this with you. Is he is he he will get people to confess that he is Lord with their lips. Everyone will do this someday, even people who hate him. But his whole desire is that people would confess not just with their lips, but also with their heart. And in that heart, surrender would know the incredible presence, power and life that has been meant that we're to live with him. But he's showing you right now, if you don't someday confess with your heart, you will still someday confess with your lips. And that's a dramatic picture of what's happening here. So as we go through this story, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, including the Pharisees, Sadducees and Herodians, all the religious leaders of that day are grouped together and they join together because Jesus is coming and threatening their very life by what he's demanding from their hearts. And so they converged together as one, all these leaders, similar to what would happen if there was a national threat and all the Republicans and Democrats and independents and everybody of every persuasion got together because of a national threat. That's what's happening at this time in Passover. They're coming together. They're looking for a way to somehow get him to, to stop not just what's happened to the nation, but to quit putting his finger on their own hearts so that they might somehow surrender to him. And they're outraged. They're outraged by his actions. They're afraid of losing their power. They're embarrassed by his teaching. He actually exposes their hypocrisy and pretense to everything he teaches. They challenged his authority. Last week when Kevin Campbell was up here, he spoke about that challenge of his authority and gave up the first story after that. But they come to Jesus and, and they've seen him walk in on this donkey. They've seen him cleanse the temple. And they're saying, where's your authority to do this? Who has given you credentials? Where did you get your ordination papers? And Jesus um, responds by giving them a trilogy of stories. And the first one we talked about and we saw last week was he was just a perfect example of people who look from the outside like they're following him, but in their hearts they're far from him. So today we read this, what I call this message that moves these people in their hearts from check to checkmate. Look at, if you would, in Matthew, which he records in chapter 21, and we'll read these verses, verses 33 through 46. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Verse 35, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants retreated them the same way. Last of all, finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Therefore, says Jesus, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, he will bring these wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, says Jesus, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a great prophet. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in this moment in time. Uh, We've been worshiping you. You've been present among us. But we're just asking now, give us the ability to know you more fully. Give us the understanding, not that we can have some kind of ability to understand the scripture with our head alone, but with our hearts. That you would transform our very character. That we would be like we heard sung, love, manifest, you present in the lives of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What I want to do is just kind of give you a brief outline. I shared that this morning. Someone came up after me because I love it when you give us an outline like this. Anyway, so um, for all you engineers, uh, the structure is really simple. Verses 33 through 39 is an illustration. And then he makes a conclusion, verses 40 through 41. And then he does this very interesting thing. He gives an explanation to their conclusion in verse 42 to 44. And then ends it as Matthew does with the reaction Verses 45 through 46. And as I've been trying to pray about how do I go through this scripture, I've come to understand instead of getting a bunch of points, I'm just going to kind of walk us through this illustration, conclusion, explanation, reaction. And then I'll end with a few applications, depending on where time is at. The illustration in verse 33 through 39, Jesus uses something extremely common in their day, something everyone could relate to, especially in agricultural um, society, because he was a master at telling stories that were pretty commonplace. You'd say, look at the flowers or look at the birds in the sky. He would then turn around at times and say, look at the sower in the field. Here he looks at the vineyard, because in that day, in that age, when he was in Jerusalem, you could look at some of the hills and you could see some of the vineyards that were there on the hillside. All throughout Palestine, there were vineyards. They're very well aware of this little story he was going to tell. And so he begins with the owner in the vineyard in verses 33 through 34. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Very, very understandable. They got that. But the, the thing that is, is most important in that little few verses that you see there, the most important concepts is this, that this garden was given to these tenants and everything they needed was there to produce the fruit. They had everything available. They, they, this was well taken care of. The owner had set it up so that they could actually see the blessing from what they planted and be able to share that blessing. 
He put a wall around it. And that day they would put a stone wall around it. Sometimes they would actually put a thorny hedge around it of some kind of bushes. In, in fact, in Palestine, you can see historically they actually even had cactuses that they would use as a wall to keep predators out. And not only did he allow for it to be protected this way, he dug a wine press. He, he didn't even leave them without anything like that. He put the ability to take the fruit and produce it so that it could become a product that could be sold and, and shared with others. So he put this, this stone and he carved it out, this wine press, so they could press the wine that came from the fruit of the vineyard. And along with that, he was really gracious. He built a watchtower. Watchtowers were incredibly important then because not only would they give you a place that you could go, where you could find a, a sense of shelter, but they also gave you the ability to give security because you could look out and see any predators, anything coming around. And then beyond that, it was a place where you could store things. So that watchtower gave them all kinds of abilities so that with all those things, the point of the story is simple. The farmers were given everything they needed to produce choice fruit. Jesus is building off imagery that they were well aware of. This isn't just a story, even just in this context, by pointing to a field. You could point back to the Old Testament, back in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Or you could go to Psalm chapter 80, verses 6 through 16. And there again, the prophets are talking about the field of Israel. The people of Israel, in a sense, were, was, was, was the place where God wanted to bless them so that they could be a blessing to others. And he provided for them, protected them, cared for them. And they were his which he had chosen, and the story goes on that they rebelled, and instead of receiving his blessing and sharing that blessing, they hogged it to themselves. That's kind of the backdrop. So this story is kind of making a little bit of sense, not just from what they commonly know, but from what they also know from God's word. And the typical of wealthy landowners, he would put these farmers in charge of his stewards. He leased the business to them, in a sense, so that they would manage it. And they were given a healthy cut, a very, very fair profit from what they had produced. Chapter 21, verse 34 indicates the landowner chose to live elsewhere. We're all familiar with that. I'm, I'm guessing they either chose to go to Naples or Scottsdale. I'm not sure which one. But that's kind of the idea. They provided the resources for these stewards and managers to develop and bless and then was away and then would come from time to time to get the profit and get the check. Well, it's interesting when you come to verse 35 and 39 of this illustration, it changes a little bit. He kind of he kind of makes a little twist. He shows instead of being responsible managers and stewards, they, in a sense, they do a mutiny. They actually, it says, seized his servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third, according to verse 35. Verse 36, then he sent other servants to them, even more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. And then it comes to verse 37. Interesting. Last of all, finally, he decides, I'll send my son. Because, you know, if I send my son, they will, they'll have to respect him. There's almost this sense of, of passion, this, this sense of emotion when he says this. Finally, last of all, they'll be ashamed. They won't hurt my son. They will turn, they, they'll turn away from the course that they've chosen. Mark actually says in his account, because I believe he's writing to Romans, not to Jews, Matthew, these people would understand this, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son concept. So Matthew, so Mark actually says this, that he sent his only son whom he loved. He wants to make it crystal clear for those who didn't have a Jewish background. 
Now, here's the amazing thing. They have no shame. They conspire together. They kill the landowner's son. And they do so with full knowledge of who this one is. It is first degree, premeditated, willful, deliberate murder. And here's something interesting. Jesus even says this in his story. They took him outside the vineyard and killed him. Which is an allusion to what's going to happen to Jesus himself, the anointed, the one and only son who will be taken outside the city and outside the city will be put on a cross and be crucified. Can you see all the subtle that's going on here? And so he concludes in verse 40. And I think it's an interesting thing. Remember, Jesus is a rabbi, so he's, he's used to being a, a teacher who is, who's got a rabbinic uh, method to him. And so as a rabbi, rabbis were often great at telling a story and then asking a question, forcing you to say with your lips the conclusion of the story. So you come to verse 40 and 41 in the traditional rabbinic matter. He allows for them to indict themselves, actually moves the chess piece from check to checkmate through their own words. Therefore, verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with to those tenants? And there's basically two conclusions. There's two simple answers, and they knew them. And the first one, they just said it right out. Verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. Isn't that interesting? He'll destroy them. He'll bring judgment upon them. Secondly, they, he continues, they continue in their answer, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. That's a pretty standard answer. After judgment, there will be a replacement. He'll start looking for new managers. And they're saying this with their own lips. And so then he begins from their conclusion, as they, through their own lips, have put themselves in checkmate. Jesus goes on to explain and just, just hammers us down, verse 42 and 44. And you've I, I got to catch this. Jesus is doing something truly remarkable at this point in the story. Now, you may wonder why I did as I studied this. Why does he move from this metaphor? He's kind of mixing metaphors. He's talking about a, a vineyard and farmers, and now all of a sudden he moves to a building and a cornerstone. Why are, you, why are you changing this to explain this? But if you follow me and stay with me, you, you have to understand Jesus is brilliant. If you're, if you're in a place right now where you're trying to understand what is the church all about, what is this Christianity thing, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, what I would ask you to do is to really pay attention to just Jesus, the way of Jesus. You watch Jesus and you just will be time and again go, wow, what compassion, what incredible intelligence. Don't look at us in some ways, okay? And so he comes and he comes to this point. And he begins to explain it. Jesus hammering home the conclusion they just made. He's sealing their guilt. He's putting them in a corner, but hoping, hoping all the time. This is what's going on. Jesus is in the heart of God is being expressed through Jesus. The heart of God is this. He's not trying to hurt them. He's hoping that someone, when he sends the son, when Jesus himself even gives this explanation, he's hoping someone's heart will open up and say, Jesus, your Lord, I understand who you are. His desire isn't to judge. It reminds me of my dad when he, when he would, when, when my brother, who's two years older, and we would get in trouble and we'd be, you know, my mom would always say, boys, you know, quit fighting. Someone's going to get hurt. You know, that kind of thing. Well, you know, we'd fight and someone would get hurt. And my dad, I'd hear him and he would always do this countdown when he wanted us to stop. He didn't immediately discipline us. We'd hear 10, 9, 8. Some of you have that? Maybe you count the other way. Only problem is you don't know if we get to 100 or not. So we knew you're getting down to zero. You're in trouble. 
There is a sense what God is doing is saying, guess what? There is a time the consequences of your actions are going to actually happen and, and, will, and you will come into harm and hurt and separation and all the things that he's talking about. But in the meantime, God, out of deep, compassionate love, even comes to those who are his enemies. And Jesus, with all that he can, seeks to put them in checkmate, not in order that they'll somehow feel defeated, but that in their brokenness, in their pain, in their understanding of being in this corner, hopeless place, they would know their only hope is in God. And so Jesus continues. And he says in Psalm 118, 22 and 23, listen to these verses. He purposely uses this. And what's so brilliant about this is this is the very passage of Scripture that was being quoted when he was marching in that triumphal entry. And that day when he went and cleansed the temple, this is what people were shouting out. Hosanna, Hosanna. Listen to what it says in verse 19, because you have to go back to the context. They knew the context. It says, open for me the gates of righteousness. Here's Jesus coming in on the cult as he's moving towards the city gate. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. Here is this Messiah, the one who is going through the gates, but he is the gate that they are to come through, for through which the righteousness may enter, says verse 20. And I will give you thanks for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. That's the backdrop. And then these words which Jesus quoted from 22 through 24, which are found in 42 through 44. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. And then you note the words in verse 25, Lord, save us, which is the words, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, here's what you have to understand. Jesus is asking them in a rhetorical way. He says in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures... If Jesus is really playing with them a bit here. Come on, you guys. You guys are really intelligent. You went to seminary, Bible college. You, you, have all, you have all kinds of understanding. In fact, you know every jot and tittle of the law. You are the guys who excel in every scriptural regulation. You are the ones who come to me asking for the little nuances of scripture that, that are, you know, you're, you're the ones who are parsing every little bit. Haven't you read this one? Surely, you guys, after he tells the story, how can it be you're struggling with this? And so he uses this quote. And what you need to really understand about these quotes of the stones and the spiller and the cornerstone is they understood it this way. Historically, in Psalm 118, they understood it is David. David was the one who was to be the rightful king that Samuel had anointed. But for years, Saul rejected him and he had to run outside the city. And eventually, God, who is good, who will always do his will, who will always make sure his kingdom is built, who will do for you what he promises if you put your faith in him, takes David in his roundabout way and puts him on the throne and says, David, from you will forever become this kingdom. In the same way, this verse also is looked at this way. So as Jesus is riding into town, they begin to say, Hosanna, our Messiah has come. Little Israel, who years before had been rejected, Assyria came in 400 years before that, wiped out the city. And after that, the Medo-Persians and then also the Greeks trampled the city. Now the Romans are in the city of Jerusalem. They are the conquerors. They are the ones who they are prisoners to, in a sense. They're in their mind saying, here comes the Messiah, the king. Little Israel. Israel that has been discarded by the nations will once again become the great nation that came under David and Solomon. That's where their mindset is. And Jesus is turning the thing to one more notch. And he's going, guys, this is not about a nation. 
This is about a king who comes to the hearts of a kingdom of people who will surrender and recognize that he's the cornerstone and will build your life on this cornerstone. It's about who Jesus is. And this Jesus, whom you reject and put on a cross, God still in this roundabout way, even though you put him at the outside of the city and you put him in this this uh, cross and then put him in this tomb, God will take whom you've rejected and he will put him back in place for anyone who wants to align their life on him, the cornerstone. You, you get how powerful that is? The cornerstones were so important in that day. Do you know when they would actually build a, a temple or a large facility, they would have these they would ask the priests and others to come around the cornerstone and they would lay the cornerstone just where it should be. And then they would have this huge celebration, this ritual where they would pray for and everything because they knew that structure in those days depended on a solid cornerstone. There were people in the Middle East. They knew about earthquakes. They knew this was so important. In fact, if you were off just a centimeter, the whole thing would be a mess. So these cornerstones were important. I remember when I studied in Israel, I, I was... And I, I get a kick out of um, like my daughters and, and others in that age because now everybody does a study abroad, right? That's a big deal. I actually did a study abroad years ago. I was forced to in our college, and I'm so glad I was. And I got to spend a semester in Israel, in Jerusalem. And I remember when I would go to the old temple, they were excavating it there, and we had opportunities to look at these huge stones of Herod's temple. And they had quarried and, 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 and actually excavated Herod's cornerstone of the temple which was 33 feet by 7 feet by 3 feet they don't even to this day know how they got those things moved to those positions but they were carefully selected out of the best quarries they were expertly crafted I just everything about this cornerstone and here is Jesus standing before the people and he says look at you've killed these different servants you've killed the son I am here the cornerstone in which all of the kingdom of God is to be placed where you can place your life and begin to experience the blessing of God and through that blessing you can begin to bless others and he, he, he makes these statements the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done us, and it's marvelous in our sight. All throughout the New Testament, you can look at Acts chapter 4, 10, and 11. Peter quotes this right after the resurrection of Jesus. First um, Peter chapter 2, 6, in his letter, he quotes it again. Paul uses this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, all about the cornerstone of Christ. And Jesus, in a short little story, makes it clear that before them stands God's anointed one, the son of the vineyard, the cornerstone, and the tenant and the builders are the farmers, and the owner is God. And the vineyard and the building is God's kingdom through the realm which his blessing comes. And in a master stroke, Jesus has concluded with the scripture that they affirm to believe. Haven't you heard? Of course we've heard. And he puts them squarely in checkmate, basically saying this, guys, listen up. You can reject me now, but know this. God will retrieve what you've rejected and put it back in place. And he will still move his kingdom forward. And someday, by your own choices. Here's the great thing about God. He doesn't even have to do the judging. Our hearts judge ourselves, and we, through our choices, make that judgment. But he gives you an opportunity, me an opportunity, to open our hearts and say, God... I want you. I invite you into every crevice of my being. 
And the reaction is interesting. Verse 45 and 46. It's surprising yet predictable. They carry out the very mutiny Jesus has just explained. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a great prophet. I just want to share with you some applications. Really important applications for us to think about. Because you know what? I would quit being a pastor and doing church if it wasn't about how we actually live and what happens in our hearts. I have little use for bringing people together just to be together. To build. I, my whole desire is that we become a community of people where we know God's blessing and walk in his presence. And in that presence we live so that other lives are touched. And it's not just about that, but it's about the very fact that my character, my hope, my character, like your character, is being formed and fashioned to become more and more like Jesus. And we begin to have hearts and eyes for our community around us and for those who are hurting and those who are lost and those who are broken, just like Jesus. So the first application is really simple. God is surprisingly patient. God is surprisingly patient. Now I add to that, if you're taking a note, waiting for you or me to respond. Now, you may say, I, I've, I've opened my heart. I've already asked Jesus in my heart. I'm, I'm you know what? The great thing about walking this journey is every step is a new step of, of opening our hearts to God and keeping ourselves open and focused to what God's doing. You may not have even taken the first step. And if you're in this place, I tell you, man, take your time. Go ahead and prayerfully consider, understand what it, what it is that Jesus is calling you to, because what you will be doing in making a decision to follow him will be something that will revolutionize your life. I'm not telling you he's going to send you to Africa or China or something like that. I'm telling you it'll revolutionize your life because it will, you will begin to see life in a new way through the eyes of God. Because when you open your heart to Jesus, you, you actually get his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit comes in, and he begins to give you eyes to see the things the way he sees. But what's really interesting is we can begin to make that decision. We can begin to follow him. And over time, it's really easy. To, it just becomes kind of humdrum, and we begin to lose it. And what I want us to do as a church and a family and a body and as people who are lovers of God is to love him so much that that love begins to transform us. And all the time, we're asking God, what is it you're calling me to? You sometimes come to me, God, and you are surprisingly patient like you are with those who reject you. You're surprisingly patient when you, I reject you. God is so full of grace. How many times do you think God comes to warn before he allows the consequences of our actions to bring us to a place where we feel the pain and the pain draws our hearts back to him? How many times could it be that you could be warned that you choose to reject God and never experience his presence and are separated forever, it says in the word of God from him? Think about it. This passage of scripture we read about an owner who set up a bunch of, who, who, who sent a bunch of servants and, and he does it again and again and again. He finally ups the ante and sends his son. You know, Justin Martyr, in his, uh, in his dialogue with Trifle, written when his life was about 103 to 165 A.D., so he was soon after the whole movement of the early church. He was a church father and one of the first early what they call apologists. He wrote about the Old Testament, kind of the tradition, and he said Isaiah was came to the people of Israel and the people of Israel here, the religious leaders of Israel in Isaiah's day. We read about Isaiah and we go, oh, they must have loved him. What a great poet, you know. They actually, with a wooden saw, sawed him in half. Jeremiah, we even were told in Jeremiah, he was beaten, he was thrown in a pit, and eventually he was stoned. 
These are the great men of God that these people are saying, oh, there are great prophets. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're no different from them. I'm no different when sometimes God comes to me than them. Ezekiel was ejected. Amos was run out of town. Zechariah was stoned. You could go on and on. These are just a sample of some of the prophets that God sent. And God makes it clear in Matthew 12, 6, he says, in Mark 12, 6, he says that I even send my beloved, my only son, and you will do the same. God, our father and creator, waits for us to respond and is so incredibly patient and gracious. And out of his intense love, everything he does for us is hopes that we'll hear his voice and respond. And I was thinking about this when I was writing this. You really think this kind of hit me. It's funny. And I'll just throw it in here. Probably a little bit off track. But anyway, do you really think? You know, these are the stewards of the vineyard. They're thinking somehow we'll be able to kill the son and get the vineyard and we'll have the inheritance for ourselves and we can just live however we please and the owner has no right on it over anymore. Do you really, I mean, I think kind of thinking, seriously, it's not like Planet of the Apes or like Frankenstein. That somehow, someday, we're going to outsmart the one who created us. You will not stand before God someday and go, yeah, I get my inheritance. Ain't going to happen that way. I mean, it isn't going to happen. I'm sorry for the, for the grammar. Kid. Um, so we're stewards, we're managers of this life. That's what he tells us. And he gives us this incredible amount of time to hear his voice and respond. And he does that because he wants us not to live in frustration, but so we can live in the fullness of what he wants for us to experience, even if it means discipline and pain to get there. So the other day, I'm, I'm feeling uh, the hand of God on my life in some ways, his point, finger pointing at my chest to some degree, but it, and it was in this way. You know, we talked about last Wednesday. We had this great community service around this Lent meal. And it's been, it, was, it was just fun to be together, more so than anything, to just be with people as we walk together towards the cross. But I came home on a Monday from a trip, and my oldest daughter, who's kind of excited about Lenten services, thought, that's really neat that Wyzetta free, because this tradition usually doesn't, you know, in any way honor this. We just kind of head right into Easter. She was excited about it. So she said to me that night, Dad, um, what are you giving up for Lent? And she was really insistent. She asked that again and again. Dad, and I kind of, uh, and I kind of mumbled, no, nah, no, and I don't know yet. And, and she was determined and relentless, which um, I don't know where she gets that from. Probably my, her mother, I'm, I'm guessing. But um, this is last Monday night, Kesha's, and honestly, I hadn't given it much thought. And I reacted, not because I was really even tired of being asked, but because I felt a sense of guilt, because I've talked about it. And so that next morning, I, I got up in my quiet time, and I just said, this morning, I'm going to give to, what is it, God, you want me to give up? So I gave it much thought, and I was surprised, because I felt this finger of God on my chest, which has been there for the last few weeks to a couple of months. And it's not what I thought it would be, you know, like, I'm going to give up sugar, I'm going to give up TV, it, it was God's voice saying, um, Kevin, I want you to give up complaining. Isn't that funny? Because I don't complain. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. And, and it's not because God wants to make my life more miserable. He really wants to take the misery out of my life and out of other people's life. And I just ask you to think about it as we are in this season. You know, the chief cornerstone is Christ, and Christ through this says you can align your life, and if you align your life with them, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, and the Holy Spirit will begin to draw you to become more like him and he wants you to be fashioned and formed like him. And so what is it? Where is it? The voice of God is speaking to you. What is he calling you towards? 
And the amazing love of God is that he's very patient. But, you know, here's the thing that I want to share with you as well. And the second application, and I'll go through these other ones very quickly. Eventually, judgment will come. So the word of God tells us again and again, Jesus is very clear, but eventually judgment will come. God's an expert of knowing when to allow the consequences to fall. And I, I just do appeal to you, um, if you have never opened your heart to Christ, really prayerfully consider what that means for you, because there was a time judgment will come. You will stand before God and you will not be able to outsmart your creator. And then the, the other thing is I want you to know about this, not only eventually God judgment will come, but know this. Especially those who, who say, I have received his blessing. You have been re- given his blessing in order to bless others. Here's what's interesting. If you choose not to be a blessing to others in the way that you don't give out grace and you don't live in grace and you live by the law and that stuff, he says you can't stand in the way of God's blessing. He will actually allow someone else to come in to manage the blessing. Here, here's the way it works with the church. God is not one who comes and closes church doors. Churches can go on. What he does, is he just takes the ministry and he moves it to people who are open to the spirit of God. Now, there's lots of churches that are open right now, but it doesn't mean that God's moving in that place. God will take and move when he's rejected, when he comes and he says, I want to move through you and I want, to, I want you to surrender your hearts. I want you to become, let my, my son be the cornerstone and my spirit be the, the one that directs your life. And if you say no to it, he'll just move it somewhere else. When it comes to parents, I want you to think about this. Dads, especially dads, I want you to think about this. You, you, you are given the role, the opportunity to parent a child. You are given the role as a dad to really stand as a father of that child. And guess what? You can choose to be so busy and do all kinds of other things and never really show up to be the dad that you're supposed to be. And guess what? That child can grow up, but God loves that child so much that he'll actually allow someone else. Sometimes it may be a coach in a school. It may be later in their life. But God will, in a child's heart, parent that child if the child wants to be parented. And you'll just give up the opportunity to be blessed. You think about it. It's a way with your money, the things that you've been given. God's given it to you to, in order to bless someone else. But you know what? You can lose the blessing. And the last thing I just want to share with you is this. Not only is it that we, uh, we can't stand in the way of God's blessing because he'll just give us, he'll find another manager to bless. There's only one place to align your life. And it's on Jesus. And I have to share with you, when I watch that story of Katie, I'm just so grateful for Katie who would share as a single parent. I, my heart goes out to single parents. It's, it is incredibly difficult. Imagine caring for kids by yourself. But I, 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 was, I was so struck. I remember meeting with her, and, and she was just in this searching place, and she said she felt lost. And I said, would you like to be found? And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, you know, you can find Jesus, and Jesus will find you and he will begin to walk with you and he won't take all this away but he'll give you the strength and he'll give you his resources will come around you in ways that as you align yourself with him he'll build the structure of your life in such a way that you will know his blessing and be able to bless others and it was the coolest thing in the world to pray with her jesus i believe is calling somebody to recognize how much he's paid a price And he's been calling maybe in your life and he's saying, would you align it with me? Would you make that same kind of decision that Katie made? Would you maybe make that same kind of decision to say, what is it, God, you want me to give up? Or what do you want me to do for you at Lent this year? I don't know what it is for you. But I'm asking you just to bow your head and pray, would you? It may be in a very loving way right now 
through the Holy Spirit of God, not through my words, but really through the Holy Spirit of God's voice speaking to you. He has put you in a place where you are feeling this checkmate. And it's not because he he has um, difficulty with you. It's not because he's trying to hurt you and mess with your life. He's here because he loves you and he knows that only in him will you experience blessing and share that blessing with others. So with your head bowed, would you just whatever it is, just say, Jesus, Spirit of God, speak to me. And if he's speaking to you, would you just open your heart and say, God, I commit myself to that. I open my heart to you. I ask you to be my all in all. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.